have a Bible with you, you might want to look at the book of Micah. If you don't have one, but you'd like one, there's some back there on that table. I saw some. And they're just there for you to go snatch. So just sneak away and get one if you want to. In one of the most celebrated texts of the Bible that often gets repeated around Christmas time, the child, the child, the Christ child is described in these words from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And it's that last designation that seems most often to attract the attention of Christmas card writers and song makers, and it marks very much what we like to call the spirit of Christmas, a sense of peace. Even if we're running a mile a minute, it's supposed to be all about peace, right? But peace is a big part of why he did come. Peace was on the lips of angelic heralds as they praised God before those awestruck shepherds. Glory to God in the highest, they said, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. So peace seems to gently permeate our understanding and mental image of the lowly surroundings of Jesus' birth. The stable, the manger, the animals that are always so still in the, in the pictures, and the mild mother, the awestruck shepherds, perhaps even those serene and richly ornamented men of the East that show up in so many manger scenes. It's a, it's a humble setting, but one of quiet stillness, or so we like to picture it. The actual dynamics, I don't know. But peace was not very evident in Micah's day. It wasn't very evident following the Messiah's birth either. No more so than peace seems to be evident in our time. The wise men we talked about, so common in manger scenes, probably arrived some weeks, maybe even months after the birth of Jesus. All the indications in Matthew's gospel point to a later time. The whole incident comes in Matthew's words after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, when those men show up. And we're told they found Jesus and his mother in a house, not in a stable. So by the time the census was over and people had kind of taken off, Joseph obviously rented a house in town so the Mary could recover and they could have some time before they headed back home. But while the wise men had some direction from ancient prophecies, Daniel, for example, who lived in their time and foretold the exact day of Messiah's arrival and a star in the heavens, they did go to the ruler of Israel to get directions because they were men. Now, these are men that actually asked for directions. So you got to give the wise men, that's why they're wise. <laughs> now, undoubtedly, they expected to find Jesus in the imperial palace there with Herod the Great. But Herod, uh, he was an elderly, elderly man. He had no infant children. He did have some sons. That those that were still alive that he had not murdered it was clear that these men were guided to someone special it was no ordinary king they were talking about they were talking about Old Testament prophecies and the star and all these miraculous happenings they had expectations of seeing the longing of many generations fulfilled with their own eyes and so they come to the palace they're looking for the Messiah the Prince of Peace well Herod was not a peaceful man he was, in fact, very much like um, modern Middle Eastern dictators who will remain nameless 
like Saddam Hussein, for example. <laughs> Did I say your main name? <laughs> Herod had to be first in everything, most of all the affections of his people, and he didn't like anybody getting in the way of that, and if somebody did, he just killed them. His son-in-law was the high priest, and the people loved him as the high priest, and they would sing his praises whenever he went out in his vestments and things like that. So one day, he invited the high priest, his son-in-law, to go swimming with him. And he had a couple of his men hold him under the water for a very long time. And he never did come up. And they had a big, lavish funeral for him. But he murdered him. He killed his uncle. He killed his wife. He killed his mother-in-law. Well, that part might be interesting. <laughs> That's a joke. It's just a joke. <laughs> Herod, sorry, Myra. <laughs> I was properly scolded. <laughs> he murdered two of his own sons. Anybody that he even thought might get in his way, he killed. In fact, one day, Herod, when he first became king, he invited 45 of the leading princes of Israel, leaders of their tribes, their groups, to come to town, some of the wealthiest men, and he just slaughtered them, 45 men, prominent men, and took all their possessions and all their lands. He did that to gain their wealth, but more than that, he did that to instill fear. Nobody will be a rival to me in Israel, he said. And he reigned for many, many years. So the message was clear. Don't mess with me. I'll not tolerate any threats to my authority. Well, naturally, when men arrived from the east looking for the Messiah of all people, the promised one, persuaded by all they know that he has been born... An intense search is made to find out where he might be. Matthew chapter 2, verse 4 says, Gathering together, this is what Herod did, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Messiah was to be born. He brought in all the big guns, the theological guns, and he says, Where is Messiah going to be born? And they said, Well, you didn't have to call us all for that. We know right where he's supposed to be born. Micah chapter 5. And they quoted him the passage. He says, go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come to worship him. He says that to the wise men. What had he heard? What had he heard? Micah chapter 5. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's sort of a paraphrase of the actual text. I'm going to look at the actual text this morning. And he tells the wise men, he says, I want to worship him too. So when you get to Bethlehem and when you find him, come and tell me about it so I can worship him too. In my usual style. Well, they go, they find the child, you know the story, they honor him. Then God tells them in a dream not to go back to Jerusalem, but to go back to the east by another route and to flee the country. Well, Herod doesn't need them. He's got eyes and ears as all wicked dictators do all, all over the place. He's got his own spy system. He's always fearful, so he's got his own people. And they come and they tell him that the guys had fled. And Matthew 2.16 says, He became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its environs from two years old and under, just to make sure. Peace on earth? It doesn't sound much like peace on earth. Infants and toddlers plucked from their mother's arms and put to the sword. But when Micah was prophesying that 700 years beforehand where Messiah would be born, it wasn't a peaceful time either. 
peace was not on the horizon for his people. Now, if you've been with us in the last few months, we've been studying through Micah's prophecy chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, and line by line. And we've been studying for some weeks now, and this morning we came to that place, Micah 5, where Herod's counselors took him. They brought this passage to his attention. Micah's prophecy speaks of peace as well, but a real world peace, which God will indeed bring about through the Messiah. The peace of Christ the Prince of Peace is not merely good feelings. In fact, it's probably that last of all. Because, you know, pious religious good feelings don't get you very far when people are drawing their swords and doing all that stuff. Good feelings have to come from substantive, real peace. The real thing. So Micah chapter 5, verse 1 is not a peaceful passage as it opens, he says, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. It speaks of the immediate future. Prophets talk about the immediate future, and they talk about the distant future, and they talk about the very end of time. They do all of that. That's their job. It's in their job description. The reason they talk about immediate future things is so you know when they talk about the end, it'll come true, because the things they say are going to happen next year, the year after that, or ten years from now, they come true. And only God knows the future. So that he has to be speaking through these men. So he may be speaking about just a couple years away when Assyria came and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. Or he may be talking about a hundred years from then when the Babylonians came and took away his own people in the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, we've talked about those events quite a bit in the last few weeks. But the general idea in verse 1 is that Israel will be the victim of humiliation and conquest soon. Her judge, which is a term for the ruler or the king, will be struck hard in the face by a foreign foe. That's his poetic language. You remember he was caught fleeing with his army. His children were slain in his presence, the king of Israel. Then he was blinded, and then he was carried off to Babylon. That is yet future, 100 years future from when Micah wrote this. But it did come to pass. Verse 2 begins with an adversative but because there's not much hope in verse 1. It doesn't look very good. But now he gives a point of contrast. In contrast to Israel's humiliation, in contrast to her deprivation, in contrast to her oppression by foreign powers, there's Bethlehem. Bethlehem. The name means house of bread. And the passage, Micah 5.2, it says, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah means fruitful. It just is a little tiny place about six miles southwest of Jerusalem. There were two Bethlehems in Palestine. One was up in Zebulun and one was down there. And so he identifies this one, Ephrathah, as the one in Judah. Judah's Bethlehem. The only thing it was really known for was the birthplace of King David, who had lived several hundred years before Micah's time, and about whom many prophecies were made that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. That's the Messiah. It's a small town. Notice what Micah says about it. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. Too little. Now, a clan was a political entity created in Moses' time of a thousand. 
A thousand people or a thousand families would be under a ruler, a prince. If he had that many people in a group, a clan, that earned the, a princely level ruler. And he would be one of the elders of Israel. Bethlehem is a tiny, tiny, it has no prominence at all. It's way too small for that. There's no prince of Bethlehem. It's just a hamlet, a small village, barely worth a mention, except that David had been born there. David and David's greater descendant, we find out through the prophecy. Now, I began this morning quoting Isaiah's fourfold name for the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Now, Isaiah lived at exactly the same time as Micah, and they lived in the same country. They prophesied at the same time. Isaiah in Jerusalem to power, Micah more outside to other communities and people that would listen. But Isaiah calls the Messiah wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And in the next verse, Isaiah 9-7, Isaiah says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. How's that going to happen? He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The passion of God will make sure that that comes true. David's throne, David's birthplace. David's descendant, yet greater than David, because this one will never see his rule come to an end. Micah says this too. Verse 2, he says, From you, Bethlehem, one will go forth for me, God speaking, to be ruler in Israel. He will rule for God. He will be sent by God. His rule and administration will serve divine ends. And right away we see his superiority to David because Isaiah says his rule will have no end looking into the future. It will extend far beyond David who reigned 40 years and died. Micah says something really amazing. He says he lived before David. Well, how can that be? His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. No end in the future, Isaiah. Micah, no beginning in the past, an eternity into the past. He lived. His goings forth, he was active. So now Isaiah's other names start to make sense, don't they? Mighty God, Eternal Father. The Messiah is no less than God himself, the creator, the ruler of the universe, the ancient of days, as he's called in Daniel, the eternal one. And when we sing, hail the incarnate deity, that's what we mean, God in flesh. We're singing of the greatest reality of all time, that God became a man. This expression from the days of eternity in Micah 5.2 is the strongest language known in Hebrew, Hebrew to identify infinite duration. It's, it's, he's eternal, eternally in the past. There's no beginning to him. In fact, the same words are used in Psalm 90, verse 2 by Moses when he says, mountains were born and thou didst give birth to the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. I'm just going to scream. Oh, no, there it is. Okay. 
Before the mountains were born, and thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. The same language is used. God is infinite and everlasting. Messiah is infinite. Infinite. The same language is used of Messiah in Micah 5.2. So he's no mere man, though he's truly a man. He is, in the language of the ancient church creeds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. It's exciting to see men try to put into words all that is expressed in the Christmas event down through the years. God becomes man. God the Son becomes the Son of Man. Why? To fix all that man has ruined. To bring peace. Now we said peace is not merely a feeling. It's much more than that. Well, there's two kinds of peace that have to be there before you feel at peace unless you're just ignoring reality. One is there has to be peace between God and man. Human beings are rebels. Have you noticed that? You may have noticed it in your own life. <laughs> you and I have a thousand times declared our independence of God's authority and God's law, made a mockery of our existence, really, by trashing all that God meant for us. We have offended infinite majesty and so we're separated from him and need to be reconciled to him. There's a good word to describe our problem. What was that word? It's sin. That was what it was. And there's a good word to describe us. Sinners. That's right. And sin casts in opposition to God's rule our very being. And since God is infinitely good, sin calls down on us the wrath and holy anger of a good God because that's what we deserve. Wrath, expulsion, exclusion from his presence and glory. But you know, God has a love that is as infinite and as boundless as his holiness and his goodness. God loves sinners and that's what Christmas is all about. God has to find a way to satisfy divine justice and to save people that he loves. How's he going to do that? Well, God becomes a man to save men from his own wrath. In Jesus Christ, God pours out his anger on him. And first he had to be tested. He grew up a child, obedient to his parents became an itinerant preacher, went about doing good. So much so that he was without sin. And just as in the Old Testament they found the spotless, perfect lamb to sacrifice, it was all a picture of what was to come. He becomes, as John the Baptist said, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God became a man to save men from his wrath. So Jesus Christ, the God-man, chose to take God's wrath on himself so that God's justice would be satisfied and his love, happily, we can receive. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the first kind of peace is the peace that Christ provides between God and man. If Jesus' death stands over you, it belongs to you, and you have peace with God. That's the good news of the New Testament. You can have peace with God 
You, sinner. I, sinner. We can have peace with God. Now, I have peace with God. Not by my doing, but by his doing. His death becomes our salvation when you surrender your life to him as your king and your savior. That's how it happens. I simply accept what he did for me and I will gladly serve him forever because of that gift. What other choice is there? What other response is appropriate than to serve him? But even if I have peace with God, and even if you find peace with God in Christ, it's not a peaceful world. Men don't want God's gift. Many follow their own lusts and the cunning of their own hearts. People are liars. People are cheaters. People are faithless to promises. Some steal, some kill. Many burn with hatred. Some are bitter. But that's not always going to be the case because the Bible says Jesus came once to bear sin, to make peace with God for all who will believe and receive it. And he will return to establish God's rule on earth to make peace by means of his power. And when you think about Christmas, you have to think about it from there all the way to the end. Why he came the first time and what he will accomplish when he comes the second time. Let's continue in Micah just a little bit further. Verse 3 of chapter 5. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who was in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Now there's a little division there time-wise. The fact that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, verse 2, and not Jerusalem is really interesting because Micah knows ahead of time that this kingly line of David isn't going to be there. It's going to be in disrepute. It's not going to be on the throne when Messiah comes. It's not going to be in Jerusalem, in the capital, in the palace. He's going to be born in that little village. He knows that. And remarkably enough, after the Babylonian captivity, no one from David's line sat on the throne or ruled in Israel ever again in any way. Israel did regain its own, its own constituted country for a while, a little while, but none of David's descendants were kings of it ever. Until a girl named Mary had a child. And the king was born when Jesus was born. Not the king that they had expected maybe but the king of peace with God first to bear sin. He came in peace to make peace. Even Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem on the great day of the triumphal entry was an announcement of a king coming in peace. When kings came to conquer, they rode horses. This is what they did in the ancient world. If the, if the king rides up to your city on a horse, look out. He's coming to take you. If he comes on a donkey, he's coming in peace. That was the symbol. So the Prince of Peace came in peace the first time. But the second part of verse 3, and then verses 4 and 5, carry us forward to the time of Messiah's power. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. 
And this one will be our peace. There is the peace imposed by the exercise of divine power and authority. And then the wickedness of the world will be overthrown. So consistent with all the other Old Testament and New Testament prophetic passages, Messiah's kingdom will be global to the ends of the earth and permanent, enduring forever, as Isaiah said. He will arise and shepherd his flock, means he will care for his people directly, personally. And he will do so in strength, not in meekness. Not in the meekness that he displayed as the sin bearer. Peace will come to all the earth because his power will extend to all the earth and wickedness won't be allowed anymore. And that's when you go back to the earlier chapter where it says, under his rule, Nations won't learn war anymore, and they'll take their spears and turn them into pruning hooks and turn their swords into plowshares. This one will be our peace. That's the promise of the season, the promise of his birth. Peace with God and peace on earth. Now we can delight in the one and wait expectantly for the other. That's why when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you say, Thy kingdom come. That's what you're praying for that day, that power. If you don't know peace, let us introduce you to the Prince of Peace. I'm serious. If you don't know peace in your life, come talk to me or one of the folks here because we'd be happy to introduce you to the Prince of Peace. And you can know peace in your life. He died, but he rose from the dead in glory and power, and he rules today, and he's coming again. And he invites you to find the only peace that lasts by knowing him and loving him. And he will be your shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, the little town of Bethlehem, obscure, and yet fulfilling your divine promise as the king waits to be born. And then he is born. And he accomplishes our salvation on a cross. He raises from the dead. He ascends to glory. And he promises to come again to be the king of peace. We long for that day. And we celebrate his birth. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.